0: Well, please take a seat. Let's Father, we thank you your Word and for what this portion of Scripture has to teach us this morning. We pray that You would help me and help us all as we grapple with these verses, that we might learn more of Christ and put all our trust in Him. In His strong and precious name, we ask these things. Amen. So, do if possible have Revelation twelve open there in front of you. We're just looking at verses one to six this morning. Uh, So here we are, Christmas Day has been and gone. And in the last couple of weeks or so in our services, we've spent a lot of time reminding ourselves of the first Christmas story, uh, which is told to us in the Gospels. The announcement of the pregnancy by the angel Gabriel, the journey down to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus in the stable, the shepherds, the angels, the star, and the wise men. It's a story we know so well, isn't it? But what I'd like us to do for our services today is to look at another biblical account of the Christmas story But as you've probably never heard it before. So, we're going to look at this story of the woman, the child, and the dragon. And it is basically the same Christmas story, but it's from a completely different vantage point. So, we're in Revelation chapter 12. And the first thing that we should recognise and remind ourselves of this morning is that Revelation is, of course, a completely different form of literature compared to the Gospels. The Gospels are historical records of the earthly life of Jesus. And so, if you like, all the events that are recorded in the Gospels... You could have captured with a camera, if cameras had have been invented back then. Uh, you could have taken a photograph of Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Uh, you could have taken a, a photograph of the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, and so forth. But the vision that John is given in the book of Revelation is not at all like that. So he's not talking about things that you could take a photograph of. This is a vision of the spiritual realities that stand behind the Christmas story. This is apocalyptic literature. Literature filled with symbolic imagery to describe spiritual realities. Symbolic imagery to describe spiritual realities. Uh, So in this account of the Christmas story, you'll not find anything about Bethlehem per se, or the manger, or the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And instead what you'll find is a woman with a crown of 12 stars and a great red dragon with Seven heads, ten horns. It is symbolic imagery to describe spiritual realities. So let's dive into this wonderful retelling of the Christmas story like you've never heard it before. There are only three characters in the story the woman, the child, and the dragon. And they take it in turns to come onto the stage. The first character is the woman, and she's introduced to us in verses 1 and 2. She's a a pregnant woman. She's about to give birth to a child. Uh, She knows what it is already. It's a a little boy that she's going to give birth to. So who is the woman? Who is the pregnant woman in this Christmas story? Well, instinctively, of course, we say, well, isn't that obvious? It's Mary. Now, we need to remember, we're not in the Gospels. We're not talking of things that you can take a photograph of. This is not Mary. Rather, the woman in this story is a symbol of the people of God. And in particular, at this stage in the story, she represents the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel. Notice she has on her head a crown of 12 stars. That's a clue to her identity, symbolizing the the 12 tribes of the people of Israel, God's Old Testament people. What do we find out about this woman? Well, there are basically two things we discover about the woman. Firstly, she's glorious. She's glorious. Look at the description of her in verse one. She's clothed with the sun. She's radiant, brightly shining. Something of the the glory of her God is reflected in her. She is, as it were, a light to the nations. No one on earth shines as gloriously as she does. And what is more, she has the moon under her feet, so she's standing on the moon. And often in the Bible, the moon is a, a symbol of permanence or reliability. So from full moon to full moon, we know exactly where the moon's going to be in the sky, and we know exactly what it's going to look like each night. It is fixed in its course. And you see, in a sense, God's people are like that. The people of God are permanent. There will always be a people of God. And they may look different from age to age. The people of God will wax and wane just as the moon does. But they are permanent. They will always be there somewhere. And as well as this, she has a crown on her head, a crown of 12 stars. We've already mentioned the 12 representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The crown tells us this is a royal people. And you see, this woman representing the people of God in the Old Testament is glorious, isn't she? She reflects something of God's glory. She's permanently established as his people. She is blessed with royal dignity and rule. The first thing we notice about this woman is she's glorious. And then as we look a bit closer, there's something else we notice about her, and that is she's suffering. It's a strange combination, isn't it? It's a paradox. Glory and suffering. And why is she suffering? Well, she's suffering, John tells us, because she is in the latter days of her pregnancy. That is, she's crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. And we might put it like this. Her suffering is by virtue of the fact that she is united with this child who is to be born. Imagine a young woman goes to her doctor and the doctor says to her, well, what seems to be the problem? And the woman says, well, I've been experiencing all sorts of pains and and suffering these past few months, but I just don't know what the problem is. Uh, My stomach has suddenly grown much, much bigger. Uh, Sometimes it even moves around unexpectedly and and suddenly. Uh, I've been feeling so sick, especially in the mornings. And as well as that, just today, I've started having these strange contractions, in my abdomen, every few minutes. Now, you'd hardly need a a medical degree to diagnose what was going on with that woman, would you? The doctor would say, well, of course, this is pregnancy. And all of that pain and all that suffering is not a strange thing. It is by virtue of the fact that you are with child and your life is entirely bound up with him. And you can only rightly understand what you're going through in relation to the fact that there is a child on its way. And you see, in a similar way, God's Old Testament people, the people of Israel, they went through times of great suffering. And they did so by virtue of the fact that they were the people who were to bring forth this special child, this Messiah, And so as it were, the Old Testament people of Israel were collectively pregnant with a child. And all throughout that story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel suffered by virtue of that fact. Their life was bound up with him. And their story was really his story. And you cannot rightly understand all the pain and all the suffering that they went through in the Old Testament, apart from the fact that this special child was going to be born to them. That's why they were a people marked with both glory and suffering. And it has to be said, this is what life is like for the people of God on earth in every age, isn't it? Not just the Old Testament people of Israel, God's people back then. For God's people on earth, it is always this Strange, paradoxical combination of glory and suffering. Always those two things here on earth. On the one hand, we are a glorious people. We reflect to some degree the glory of God shining in our lives. There's something different about us. And as God's people, we are established permanently as his people, more permanent, more immovable than even the moon itself and we're a people blessed with royal dignity citizens of a divine kingdom make no mistake the church on earth is glorious glorious things of you are spoken and yet alongside that the people of god suffer here on earth and our suffering is by virtue of the fact that our life as god's people is bound up with Christ. As Paul puts it, we always carry in our body the death or even the dying of Jesus. We're united to the, the Christ who suffered. And therefore, there is a degree of suffering that comes our way as Christians simply by virtue of the fact that we're united with Christ. Christ. And so the woman in the story stands for the people of God, a, a people marked with both glory and suffering here on earth. At the end of verse two, this, this birth of this special long-expected child is about to happen. In other words, Christmas is coming. Jesus is about to be born. And then before the child is born, suddenly the second of these three characters comes onto the stage. And this is the dragon. Now, we don't have to figure out who the dragon is because John explicitly tells us who the dragon is. Look at verse nine for a second. He says there, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. See, the dragon is Satan, this great enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. What do we find out about the dragon in these verses? Well, the first thing we notice about him is that he's powerful. Verse three, behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. Now these things, the the seven heads, the ten horns, the seven diadems, it's all symbolic of great power, great strength, great authority, rule over people. This dragon is not to be trifled with. He exerts great power in the world. He holds billions of people in his sway. Paul describes him as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They may not know that he has blinded them, but he has blinded them. He exerts his power in that way. Elsewhere, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We need to understand firstly that Satan is extremely powerful and his power is felt throughout the world. And not only is he powerful, but also he's destructive with that power. So John continues, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And you see, his desire is to bring chaos and upheaval to the world. This creation that God made good, the devil seeks to unravel and to destroy. He wants to make a mess of the world. He wants to bring destruction to it, just as he intended in the Garden of Eden. And then thirdly, he is murderous. He's been a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. John writes, the dragon stood before the woman, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now notice this, the dragon's murderous intent is focused against the woman. That is, it is Satan's desire to destroy and to kill the people of God. But not just the people of God in general. In particular, we read here that his murderous intent is aimed First and foremost, at the child himself. It's a gruesome scene that is described to us here, isn't it? Try and picture it in your mind's eye if you can. Here's this woman, and she's about to give birth. She's in labor. And of course, it's a a very painful occasion, but a happy occasion as well. This is what she has been waiting for all this time. And yet standing by, ready and waiting, is this grotesque dragon. And he's watching carefully, watching the woman's every move. And he's waiting for this decisive moment when the child will be born, so that immediately he can kill him and eat him. Now, Johnny is talking here about the spiritual realities that stand behind, amongst other things, the story of Matthew chapter 2. Remember the story of the wise men, how initially they visited king herod Uh, they told him that a new king of the jews was about to be born and what did herod do well herod had the mindset of the the dragon this is why it was such a, a good answer to to focus on herod in the children's talk earlier on herod had the mind of the dragon and so herod kept a close eye on the proceedings he watched every move He said, tell me exactly when and where this child is going to be born so I can worship him. But of course, it's not his intention to worship the child, but rather to kill him. It's the mindset of the dragon you see at work in Herod. And then when the wise men later gave Herod the slip, this dragon-like murderous intent of Herod exploded. Matthew tells us Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. I don't misunderstand John's vision here. He's not saying the dragon is Herod. We've seen already the dragon is Satan. But the dragon, you see, is powerful, and he is destructive, and he's murderous. And he exerts his influence through all of those who are under his sway. Whenever someone opposes Christ and opposes his people, the spiritual reality standing behind all of that is this dragon, Satan, exerting his influence through his people. And make no mistake, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the dragon was already there, watching, waiting, looking for any opportunity to kill him. And what would become of this child? Well, in verse 5, the third and the final character in the story comes onto the stage, the child himself. And there's no prizes for guessing who the child at the center of the Christmas story is. The child is, of course, Jesus. He is this long-expected child, the one born of the people of Israel, the one opposed by the dragon, who is Satan. And John says, she, that is the woman, gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now notice here, it's surprising, isn't it? John goes straight from Christmas to the ascension within the space of a few words and he misses out everything in between the birth and the ascension. He simply tells us that the woman gave birth to a male child. That's the That's the Christmas story. And then he tells us in the next breath, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension of Jesus. So John's vision here doesn't tell us anything about the life of Jesus. Nothing about his teaching and his miracles. Nothing even about his death and his resurrection. And of course, if we want all of those details, John has written another book with all of those things in, the Gospel of John, and we can get all of that information there. But John's vision here simply focuses on this fact, that the child who was born in Bethlehem is now the one who has ascended to the throne of heaven. And so the dragon's evil plot to devour Jesus was ultimately thwarted. And at Calvary, the dragon perhaps thought that he had finally succeeded in getting rid of Jesus. And then three days later, it became obvious that really the dragon didn't stand a chance against Jesus, not even death would hold him and then a few weeks after that resurrection Jesus was then caught up to God and to his throne he ascended to the throne of heaven as king over all and because that is where Jesus now is he is the one who fulfills this great prophecy of Psalm 2 the psalm we sang at the start of our service do you recognize that reference to Psalm 2 in the middle of verse 5 Jesus, says John, is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It's worth just reminding ourselves what Psalm 2 has to say. It's this great prophecy of Christ. And it begins with the nations of the world plotting against the Lord and his Christ, seeking to overthrow them, seeking to defeat them. And again, you see, it's this dragon-like mindset To try and do away with Christ once and for all. And the God who is in heaven laughs at this. Because it's ludicrous even to imagine that anyone can successfully overthrow the rule of God in Christ. And the matter is already settled in the will of God. The Father has chosen his son. He he has appointed him. He has made the nations Christ's heritage. He's installed him as king. The ends of the earth his possession and he will be king over all and though billions of people on this earth still side with the dragon by standing opposed to the rule of christ and refusing to worship him and refusing to obey him the day will come when christ himself will finally and emphatically destroy all of that opposition and as it were he will break them with a rod of iron dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a chilling picture of the final judgment, isn't it? And yet Psalm 2 ends not with a warning of judgment, but with an invitation to safety. This is how the Psalm ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you see, this is the gospel according to Psalm 2 and according to Revelation 12. That the dragon and all of his followers will end up on the losing side because the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem has now been caught up to God. And he is on his throne as king over all. And one day he will return as judge. And he will destroy all those who reject his reign. But there is blessing promised blessing promise to everyone who takes refuge in him that is everyone who repents of their futile rejection of christ and instead they come to him in faith they trust in him i wonder is that you this morning that you're one of those who has come to christ in repentance and in faith So that the return of Christ and the final judgment on that day promises no terror for you whatsoever, only blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if you are one of those who has come to Christ like that, well what can you expect now? What is life on earth going to be like for you as one of Christ's people? And that's what the final verse of the passage says has to say to us we've already met all three characters in this story haven't we the woman and the dragon and the child and then in verse six the woman returns to the stage for a second time now remember the woman is a symbol of the people of God and as we've seen back in verses one and two she referred to the people of God in the old testament the people of Israel in verse six The story has now moved on. And so we're now looking at things that are to take place after the birth of Jesus and after his ascension to heaven. So in verse 6, the woman is still the people of God. But she is now the New Testament people of God. In other words, she now stands for the church. She represents us in the story, the New Testament people of God. And what can we, the church, expect as we live in this world. Well, verse six sums it up for us very briefly. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, remember, this is a vision that is being described to us here. This is symbolic imagery, not the kind of thing you can take a photograph of. Uh, We're not too... Take these things literally, Uh, the imagery of the wilderness and the 1,260 days. What do they mean? What do they teach us if it's not a literal 1,260 days or a a literal wilderness? Well, consider this. This is always a a good question to ask when you're reading Revelation yourself and you come to something that, that puzzles you. Ask this question, what does it remind you of in the rest of the Bible? What does it remind you of in the rest of the Bible when you read here about the people of God going into the wilderness? And it's obvious when you put it like that, isn't it? It reminds you of the story of the Exodus. That God has rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt. They've re- he's rescued them from the dragon-like Pharaoh who sought to oppress the people of God. And God brought them out of that and he brought them into the wilderness there. And for 40 years, they were tested in the wilderness. And throughout that time, God miraculously cared for them. He provided everything his people needed. And then a little while later, he brought his people out of the wilderness and into their inheritance. And this, you see, is what the imagery of verse 6 means. God is saying to us here through John, the people of God today, the church... The the people of God on earth are going through a, a similar experience in some ways to what the people of Israel experienced when they were in the wilderness. So first of all, they are a people already saved by God. That is, Israel had already been saved from Egypt by the time they entered the wilderness. Their redemption had already occurred. And in a similar sense, the church today has already been saved in this sense. In that we have already been set free from our slavery to sin. And we've been set free by the blood of our Passover lamb, who is Jesus. And our redemption is a fact of history accomplished by Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so here's the positive side of it. The fact that we're in the wilderness represents the fact, firstly, that redemption has already come to us as god's people in the world today and yet that's not to say that everything is easy for the church far from it we are in the wilderness after all in other words the world is a testing difficult environment for the church to live in and again as we saw earlier on we're a people marked both with glory and suffering And you know it from your own experience. There are times, aren't there, when as a Christian, you feel strongly like you're passing through a wilderness in this life. It just seems so difficult. It feels like you're in a wilderness as a Christian. And our faith is put to the test as we pass through this world. And yet, nonetheless, we know that in the midst of this wilderness, our God cares for us. And he provides for us everything that we need. Just as when the people of Israel passed through the wilderness, God was with them, guiding them, providing them with all that they needed. God is with his church in the world today. And indeed, John can even describe this wilderness as a place prepared for us by God, a place in which we are nourished. And you see, he's saying, even though the church today is in the wilderness, God has gone before us as it were. He has prepared a place for us. He, has nourished, he is nourishing us in this world. He has mapped out our journey through this world. And he will be with his church every step of the way along the journey, providing everything that is needed every day of that journey. And what is more, the church will soon be home. The church will soon be home. Those wilderness years must have felt like a long time for the people of Israel, I'm sure. And yet those years were not interminable. And after a little while, God again brought them out of the wilderness and he brought them into their inheritance. And you see, John is saying to us here, Church of Jesus Christ, those redeemed already by Christ, those who are now put to the test in the world, those who are being cared for by God every step of the way, soon you will be home. Soon you will be home. So keep going. Because the finish line is in sight. And that is what the 1,260 days is all about. Again, it's symbolic. Don't take the number literally. And it stands for this period of time, this time whilst as God's people we're in this wilderness of the world already redeemed put to the test in a difficult environment and yet cared for by God and almost home and the point is this period of history you see when the people of God are in the wilderness once again it's not going to last forever it is a set period of time and in the grand scheme of things it will be relatively brief And someday soon, Christ will return. And on that day, he will bring his church out of the wilderness. And he will bring us into the full enjoyment of our inheritance with him forevermore. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the amazing vision given to us in these verses as told by John and we thank you that all throughout history there has been a people of God in the world a people who are marked with both glory and suffering in the world and we've been reminded today of the reality of the enemy who stands against us Satan this powerful destructive murderous enemy who stands opposed to Christ and stands opposed to Christ's people. And yet we thank you that Jesus is the victor. He has defeated Satan and he has now ascended to heaven and he's on the throne there. And he's ready to return in judgment. And as we wait for him, we thank you that even as we pass through the wilderness of this world, that you're a God who is with us, caring for us, sustaining us, providing us and guiding us each step of the way. And we pray that one day soon this period of history in which we currently live will draw to a close when Christ returns and brings salvation to us who are waiting for him. In his precious name we pray all of these things. Amen.